to John chapter 3. We'll get to our text in just a minute, but I wanted to uh, just welcome everybody this morning, and I assume and trust and hope and pray that you'll have a nice Christmas. Um, my wife and I and our one of our children had the opportunity to go to China this year and uh, spend Christmas over there. It was a, a rare opportunity, and we just had a great, uh, great time. Got to uh, knock one more thing off my bucket list, and that was to climb the, climb the Great Wall. So uh, that's what we were doing on Friday. And also on Christmas Eve. Christmas is not a holiday in China. It's just a day like any other day. And uh, Christmas Eve was our, was our last evening in Shanghai. And we were staying with a Chinese family. And they took us out to dinner and invited lots of friends. And it was a unique opportunity to, to share with them. I was provided the opportunity to share with them that night about Christmas and Christmas Eve and what the true meaning of that is. So it was wonderful. I had the, praise God, I had the opportunity to get up and share, actually, from the message I had this morning on John 3.16 with about 20 Chinese men and women who, some of them who would make a statement of faith, a claim to be Christian, most of them would not. And it was, it was just a fantastic opportunity to get up and to share with these folks what the true meaning of, of Christ, a Christmas is and share with them the offer that's made to them through Christ. So... Um, it's a little, I'm a little tired this morning. We just got back yesterday. I flew across 14 time zones yesterday. So it's coming up on one in the morning for me. So if I fall asleep up here, if you just wouldn't mind, just get up quietly and, and leave, turn out the lights. Um, I would not bother me. I think I have enough caffeine in me though to keep me going for another couple hours. But if, uh, if not, if you want to shout out a hearty amen, once in a while to jolt me back, that would be much appreciated. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word that speaks to us truth and life. As we look at this passage in John chapter 3 and we hear the offer of eternal life. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and make that real to us. Lord, for those of us who have experienced your great love and have been born again, made anew, we thank you for that love. For those who don't, may the offer that's extended to them be made real to them as well. Lord, your spirit is who changes our hearts and our minds. Lord, all I can do is speak your word. But it needs to be empowered by your spirit. And I ask that to be the case this morning. So come, Lord. Speak to us through your words. Change hearts. Change lives. Give us faith to believe in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Open to John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me. If not, it should be up on the... Screen here in just a second. John chapter 3, beginning of verse 3, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. All I have told you, uh, I, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, and this is where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Amen. John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It may be perhaps one of the most often memorized, perhaps one of the most cherished verses in all of Scripture. And we see it referenced and quoted all over the place. If you go to sporting events, you often see people there with signs saying John 3.16. When we were um, living in California, we lived in Pasadena, and we have gone many times to the Rose Parade there. And every year at the end of the parade, there are a number of individuals walking along with posters and placards with that verse either referenced or written out walking along behind it. It's just a common verse that we see many places in society. It's, it's just one of those verses that almost everybody seems to know, at least the reference to it. It's not hard to, to see why that might be, because it's um, packed into this verse are some incredibly profound and powerful statements and doctrines and words. Some of the most powerful truths that are found in Scripture are found right here in this verse. And as we end another year, what could be more important for us this morning than the great truth that's communicated to us in this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What could be more relevant or important for us this morning? What could be more urgent for us as we gather together this morning? What could be more urgent for us to, to, know, to know where we stand in relation to God as this verse communicates to us? Let me answer that for you. It's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that is more important this morning than to know where you stand in relationship to Christ. Whatever you have in your mind right now, if it's not God, it's not important. Lunch plans, New Year's Eve plans, football scores, emails that may be coming in on your, on your phones, those are not as important as this. We are human beings who at any moment could fall into eternity when that happens, when we die, where are you going to spend eternity? And that's what this verse is about, answering that question. And it, it helps us to know whether we're going to spend eternity in hell or in the presence of the Lord forever. And what makes the difference and how that happens, this verse helps to clarify for us. That's why this verse is so loved. That's why it's so cherished and so well-known. 
So if you have lesser things on your mind, if you have something other than God on your mind, other than this verse on your mind, just encourage you to ask God right now to help you block those out. Just focus in on this for the next 40 or 45 minutes. So my plan this morning is to walk through this verse and consider each of these big words. There are a lot of big words in this, in this verse, and we're going to walk through them. Words like God, love, world, gave, son, believe, perish, and life. There's eight of them. So we're going to walk through these this morning, one by one, in order, with the exception of the word love. I'm going to take that one and put it to the end and come back to it at the end. So let's get going here. Eight magnificent words for us to consider. The first one is God. John 3.16 begins, for God. There's no reason to here to think that Jesus means any other God than the God of the Old Testament. He is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. He's a personal God. He's not just a mere force, which means he thinks and he wills and he feels. He loves and he hates. He's a moral being as well. That means he deals with us in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. It also means that he's a moral being. He's absolutely, perfectly, and unwaveringly, unwaveringly righteous. He only does what is good. It's impossible for God to do anything otherwise. All of us were made by this God, and our first and primary duty as his creation is to honor him and to thank him. But not one person has ever done that perfectly except for Jesus. And therefore, we are all perishing because in his righteousness and God's righteousness, he does not sweep our sins or our unrighteousness under the rug. Our failure to honor, cherish, and obey God will be dealt with either in hell or on the cross. It's going to be dealt with somewhere. The question is where. We have all failed, and therefore we are all under his righteous judgment and his wrath. That was what, that's what's, what makes John 3.16 such a wonderful verse for us. It describes the way God is acting to rescue us from this condition that we find ourselves in. Secondly, the world. For God so loved the world. The most common meaning for the world in the Gospel of John is the created and fallen totality of mankind. John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John fourteen seventeen says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. That's the world. The world is evil. All the people are evil and in opposition to God. There are many, many religions out there that talk of God, but they don't know or love or honor God. John makes it very clear in his gospel, and Jesus states it over and over again. If you don't know me, you don't know him, referring to God. If you don't love me, you don't love him. If you don't honor me, you don't honor God. And he said it mainly to the Pharisees. These were the men at the time who knew God or knew of God more than anyone else in society at the time. And Jesus tells them repeatedly that they do not know God. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God and you do not know God. So that's the way that God, sorry, that's the way that Jesus is using the word world, world here. It's the great mass of fallen humanity that needs to be saved. It's the countless number of perishing people from whom the whoever's that we will see about in just in the second part of this verse come from. It says, it qualifies, it says that whoever believes in him should not perish. So this fallen evil world full of fallen evil people is the object of God's love in this verse. Number three, 
For God so loved the world that he gave. A couple of thoughts on this word gave. The first is the direction of the gift. It's a giving from heaven to the world. And the other is that it's a giving to die. Verse 17 replaces the word give with send and reinforces this point. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the giving of verse 16 is God sending his son into the world on a mission from heaven. Second point is seen as well in John 10, 17 through 18. Here it says, here we see that with the goal and the purpose of, of Jesus' mission was, Jesus says here, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. For no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is saying that God charged Jesus, his Son, to go and to die. And this is, can be very hard for us to understand, to feel the weight of this. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, the giving is God sending his Son to earth on a mission to die for us. It's just an amazing thought to think about, only a million times more so if we'd said that to our Son, said something like this, There is something I want you to do for me. I have some enemies that deserve to die. I want you to go to suffer and to die in their place so that they can have eternal life. Whatever else you know about God, make sure you know this. God said to his son, I have a mission for you. Those people, those people on earth, my creation, are my enemies. But I want to save them. And I want you, referring to Jesus, I want you to suffer and to die in their place so that I can save them. Whatever else you may know about God, whatever else you may think about God, whatever else... Someone else has told you about God, you need to know this, that God sent his son on a mission to die in your place. Four, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There are some mysterious things about God the son, things that can be hard to understand. Among these can be the fact that God did not have sexual relations with Mary in order to have a son. Go back to chapter 1, where John gave us our basic understanding of the son of God. And despite our comfort, most of us in this room are comfort with, comfortable with this fact. It can be difficult for non-Christians to understand. They don't have any framework or reference to, to grasp and to try to understand this within. But in John 1.1 1, 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here John begins to introduce us to the, to the Word. And in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father. Now we have an idea about the Son. He was not some product of some sexual reunion with, with Mary. These verses clarify some things for us regarding Jesus. First, the Son is God. Secondly, He is with, yet, with God, yet He is distinct from God. This is why we call Jesus the Son of God and refer to, also refer to God the Father. One, yet two different distinct um, um, essences there. Not, not different essences, but uh, two, two of the parts of the Trinity. The third is that this relationship has always existed. It didn't have a beginning. This can be another difficult concept for people to grasp. How can there be a being that doesn't have a beginning or an end? 
Any one of you with children has at some time probably had to answer this question. Where did Jesus come from? Where did God come from? How did they get started? How did they get where how can it be that they don't have a beginning? Those aren't easy questions to answer for us as parents because there's no answer to those questions. They didn't they don't have a beginning. They don't have an e, an end. They just always have been. And that's not easy to explain at times. It's one of the most mind-boggling realities that we that we know of that God is a Father, a Son, a Holy Spirit, one God, one divine essence, one divine nature in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, existing in a relationship of infinite purity and joy in a reality without beginning or end. That was the Son that was sent by the Father. Number five, believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes. The question this morning is for us is, do you believe? It's a personal question that each one of us has to answer sometime in this life. Get it wrong. If you get the answer to this one wrong, there are dire consequences for you. And here's why. Because if you don't believe, when you die, you will perish forever. A couple of observations about believing. First, it means that not everybody will benefit from what Jesus came to do. The believing here in this verse is qualified with whoever Jesus said, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So believing calls out attention to a condition. If you don't have the faith that believes, then you will perish. If you do have the faith that believes, then you will have eternal life. Not everybody is going to have eternal life. Those without faith will perish and not have eternal life. Secondly, the word believing itself means to embrace something that's true. And when it's a person, it means to trust them to be what they say they are and do what they will say. That's what faith That's what faith is. When I say I trust you or have faith in you, I'm saying I believe you. And I believe that you will do what you will say you will do. When we say we believe in Jesus, we are saying that we have faith that he is who he says he is and he is able to do what he says he's able to do. And third, we need to be careful at times with our religious jargon. There are many people out there who would claim to be Christians who would say that they've received Jesus into their life. But what does that really mean? To say I've received Jesus means nothing until you've answered the follow-up question, what have you received Jesus as? An unwelcome guest to your party that you wish would leave so you could have some real fun? Have you received him as, a, as if a repairman to come in and fix the stove or the furnace? There are a lot of ways to receive Jesus that have no effect on our eternal destinies. So what have you received Jesus as? Have you received him as who he is? Not what you think he is or what someone told you he is or what you would like him to be. Have you received him as he is? So the correct response to the question, have you received Jesus as he is, would be to receive him as what he is. John six thirty five says, Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you receive Jesus as that, Jesus says, I am the kind of being that if you come and drink here, your thirst will be satisfied. Or I'm the food, and if you eat here, you won't have the anger and pride that are ruining your marriages or the desires that make you greedy and dishonest. That is Christ, the Son of God, our wrath remover, our strengthener, our soul satisfier. What isn't Christ for us? Paul called him my all in all. 
When you believe, that's what we receive. And then we spend the rest of our lives growing up into that and understanding the, the fullness of that. That means that receiving the gospel is the way we solve every problem in life. Health, relationships, anger, uncontrolled desires, greed, anxiety. The solution to all these problems is I need more of the gospel. I need more of Christ. Jesus, you are everything I need. Every morning when we get up, we go back to the gospel. It's where we find everything we need to get through the day. It's where we find the strength to get through the day. And this is not just basic stuff, folks. This is real life. Life can be difficult at times. There are challenges. There are health issues that have to deal with. Our financial issues are real. Our struggles and relationships are real. But where do we find the strength and the power to get through it? The solutions to those problems is found at the cross. So we get up every day. We pray and ask God to help us through the day. So here, believing means coming to Jesus and receiving him as the food and drink that satisfies our souls. And this is a faith that's transforming. So has your life been transformed by this faith, or do you live a life that is indistinguishable from the world? Number six, moving on to perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What's most important here is to see that the, the, the word perish is set up as the alternative to alter, eternal life. There are two options here, perish or eternal life. Perishing is eternal. Those who are perishing will continue to exist, but it isn't eternal life. Verse 18 describes perishing as well as being condemned. This is a legal word. It's a judgment or a, a, a sentence that comes from a judge. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So God has already delivered a judicial sentence of guilty over all of mankind. We are all perishing, and we are all destined, destined for hell, and we are all deserving of that. If we are dead in our sins, God owes us nothing, absolutely nothing. If God chose to pass us over, if God chose to pass me over and does not awaken me, does not bring me back to life, God has done me no wrong by doing that. Yet we do him infinite wrong every day. We count him as less valuable than the pursuit of fame. We count him as less valuable than the pursuit of fortune or pleasure or self-esteem or health or entertainment or the search for a spouse. There are many things that we pursue that are not the same as pursuing God. And God's judgment and his wrath remains upon unrepentant sinners. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we are already under the condemnation of God, as verse 18 stated, because of our sin and our unbelief. And verse 36 says it remains on us if we do not believe. If we continue in unbelief, God's wrath remains on us. And there is nothing you can imagine, no matter how hard you may try, try and try and try, there's nothing you can imagine that would be as bad as experiencing eternal eternity in hell, where you're going to experience the wrath of an omnipotent, holy God resting on you forever. There's nothing worse. And that's what perishing is, is it's to stay in hell forever under God's wrath. It's a punishment with no end, and it's a debt that can never be paid off. Eternal life, the opposite of, of perishing. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This does not simply mean that you will exist forever. It's not an extension of this life. The true meaning of eternal life, though, is what you get if you do believe. Eternal life is a new birth. John 6.63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life, in 1 John 5.11, that this life is in His Son. So what happens? basically works like this. We are dead, rebellious, disinterested, and headed away from God. And God blows His Holy Spirit in His freedom over our lives. There's a quickening. There's an awakening. And in that moment, through the awakening of faith, we are united with Christ, in whom there is life. The Holy Spirit comes and unites us with Christ. And in that instant, when we were born again, we who just a moment ago did not believe, now believe in an instant. And in that instant, we become united with Christ. And then we take on eternal life. And it's going to be a life that lasts forever. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, this is John eleven twenty five. whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's go back now to, to the word love, and we'll spend the remainder of our time here this morning. Number eight, love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reason I'm putting this one off to the end is because there is a bit of a um, tension that's created in John chapter 3 here between verse 8 and verse 16. And it's crucial that we understand how the word love applies in both of these verses. Going back to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, it says, Do not marvel that I say to you, or said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a freedom of the wind. It comes, it goes. Yes, there are scientific and meteorological reasons about where the wind comes, and we can, you know, the weathermen on the, on the TV can predict that. But if you get... Focusing on that, you're going to completely miss the point here. The, wind, the freedom of the wind to come and go where it wants is what Jesus is saying here. And the same is true, he says, for everyone who is born by the Spirit. So verse 8 highlights for us the absolute freedom of God to land where he will on dead sinners like you, dead sinners like me, and make them alive. This is, isn't something that he does for everyone. There's not a single dead rebellious sinner who deserves to be born again. Nobody deserves to be rescued from their rebellion. Then comes verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe would not perish, but be saved, born again, and enter eternal life. It creates a little bit of a tension here if you're paying attention and following along. As many, and many Christians in their effort to explain the tension will either strip away the meaning of verse 8 or the meaning of verse 16. But if we believe the Bible, then we have to let the Bible have its say. We err and dishonor God when we attempt to make Scripture say what we want it to say. So on the one hand, in verse 8, it says that the Spirit of God blows where He want, wills and makes alive whom He chooses. God is free just like the wind. And it is He, not you or I, who has the final decisive say in who's, who and among the dead are going to be raised to new life. None of us deserves to be made alive and none of us has the power to make it happen. If anybody is to be rescued from their sin, God alone does it. On the other hand, verse 16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
So the question is, how does God love the world according to John 3.16? Jesus clearly says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. We come to this passage and any other passage, it's important that we let the Bible define what it means by the word love. We should not bring all of our assumptions about love and make the Bible mean what we want it to mean. So a couple of um, uh, observations about the word love from John 3.16. First of all, God loves the world. That is, he loves the great totality of fallen, sinful human beings. Secondly, this love is of such a kind and such an intensity and magnitude that it moved God or motivated God to send his son to come from heaven to earth. He sent him on a mission to die for the world. In verse number three, the clear purpose and effect of that love and the giving of that son is this. Whoever believes, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In other words, this offer, this love opens up a real door to anyone who believes on the son can enter into eternal life. So therefore, the love of John 3.16 is indiscriminate. It's the great message of the church. This is the great message of the church. It may be spoken, it may be promised and applied to anyone and everyone without exception. We should shout it out to anyone who will listen. We should shout it out whether they don't want to listen. We need to proclaim it boldly on the highways and byways of life as we go about our days, go about our lives. It's what motivates us in evangelism. This love says that if you believe in my son, I will give you eternal life. If you believe your sins are canceled, God's love for the world says this, I gave my son so that trusting in him is the only condition for living with me forever. So it's right and appropriate for us to tell anyone and everyone, God loves you. We hear that word, we hear that phrase a lot, and it is appropriate for us to share that, to say that, because it's true. God loves you, and this is how much he loves you. He gave his son to die so that if you would believe, your sins would be forgiven. That's a proper way to understand John 3.16, the word love in that verse. That's what the, Lord, the love of God means and promises to us. And that's why this verse has been so amazingly used and blessed by God over the centuries to bring people to Christ and into salvation. It clearly communicates the free offering of the gospel. There are no limits to the offer. It goes out to all people of every ethnic group, of every age and every socioeconomic category. And the best of all, it goes out to every sinner from the worst, from the least to the greatest, from the bad to the worst. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, it's an indiscriminate and universal whoever, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When I was a child, my parents sent me to Overland Park Presbyterian Church. They were not Christians. My grandparents were, and they felt the pressure of my grandparents to send my sister and I to, to Sunday school. So my parents would get up on Sunday mornings, get up out of bed, drive my sister and I over to Overland Park Presbyterian, Presbyterians, just a couple blocks from our house back then, drop us off. They would go home, go back to bed, come back in an hour and pick us up. I got this Bible when I was, when I was eight years old. The inscription in it, still there, I still have this. It says, presented to David Quilla by Overland Park Presbyterian Church, September 8th. 1968. I've got the Bible. It's made it with me through all of the moves, all the way through childhood, all the way through my teenage years, into my adult life. 
I'm sure I had a lot of other books that got lost, but somehow this one managed to stay with me through those years. And when I was nine, we stopped going to, to Sunday school. But I remembered one verse, one reference through all those years, John 3.16. It's still, I have not opened this Bible in years. It's still, you take that little thingy, I don't know what you call that. Open it up, I just lost it. <laughs> After 50 years, <laughs> it was in the same page, it opens up to John 3.16. And that verse is circled in there. I don't remember if I did that or if one of the Sunday school teachers did that. But the offer was made to me. I, I knew the love of the offer when I was eight. I had it memorized, but yet I wasn't saved. The offer can't and doesn't save us. So what's the problem with this verse and the definition of that? Uh, definition, that definition of love? Well, nothing's wrong with that. Unless you try to take that expression of God's love and cancel out other expressions of God's love that we see in Scripture, which is what a lot of people try to do. God has more than one degree or measure of, of love. His love is a multifaceted or a multidimensional love. God the Father loves His Son more than He loves the birds sitting on the trees outside. He is loving towards all of creation. Yet it is clear that He has a special love for His own people. We are the same way. I've got a sofa in my living room that I love to go home to in the evening, recline on, watch TV, take a little nap read the newspaper, whatever it is, it's, it's my place to go home. I love to go just recline on that sofa. But you know what? If there was a fire, my first thought would be to get, make sure my family gets out, and I would not have any thoughts about that sofa. I love my family more than I love. I love that sofa, but I love my family more than the sofa. I want to make sure my family gets out, and I'm not really going to be too concerned with the sofa. And it's the same way with God. There are at least three other expressions of God's love in Scripture one of which a lot of people try to make null and void by using John 3.16. Each of these expressions of love, they have their place. They all are meant to bless us, to help us, and to encourage us, and to strengthen us. First, there is God's love for His Son and the Son's love for the Father. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 14.31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Secondly, God loves his creation, and he sustains it with his care, even for the use of his enemies. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And Matthew 5, 44-45 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. unjust. God's love for creation moves him to provide rain and sunshine for all. But the most precious experience of the love of God is the love of God that moves him, moves God to go beyond the free offering of the gospel in John 3.16 and to choose a people for himself, bringing them, bringing them to himself in faith. To know this kind of love is the greatest experience that any of us can ever have in life. And we call this kind of love God's electing love. It's with this love that God goes way beyond the offer in John 3.16. With this kind of love, his electing love, he overcomes our rebellion, he overcomes our resistance, and he conquers us and makes us his own. I heard the love expressed in the offer when I was eight, a love, an offer that I remembered through my childhood and my teen years, but I was not born again because I had not experienced new life. I had not experienced 
the electing love yet. Where do we see this kind of love? We can see it in God's choosing of, of um, his people. In Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the heaven of the heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. The point here is that God did not offer to be Israel's God before he made them his own. He made them his own unilaterally. He took them for himself. He sovereignly conquered the pagan worshiper Abraham and made him his own. He did not go and make Abraham an offer. He didn't sit down and negotiate with Abraham. God didn't go out to three or four different individuals or people groups and see who could make him, who he could work the best deal with. He freely and he sovereignly and unconditionally chose Abraham. And by doing so, he chose not to choose the Hittites, the Amorites, the Philistines, and many others. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8 says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. Why did he love them? He loved them because he loved them. That's, that's all it says. Period. End of statement. If we go looking for an explanation as to why God chose Abraham and not someone else, we dishonor God because there isn't an explanation for about why he chose Abraham. This is not an offer that God made. God chose. That's what we refer to as electing love. We see the same kind of love in God's raising us, raising us from spiritual death, death and causing us to be born again. Remember back in John 3.8, it says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being a born again happens to us at the Spirit's will. We can't control the wind and we can't control the Spirit. The Spirit comes and goes with His regenerating power as He pleases. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, calls this not just love, but great love. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, The great king, immortal, invisible, the divine person called the Holy Spirit, it is he that stimulates the soul, or else it would lie dead forever. It is he that makes it tender, or else it would never feel. It is he that imparts power to the world to the word preached, or else it could never reach further than the ear. It is he who breaks the heart. It is he who makes it whole. He, from first to last, is the great worker of salvation in us, just as Jesus Christ was the author of salvation for us. So we were dead in our trespasses. God then comes and makes us alive. Everything that we do happens after that. Faith and love, obedience and repentance are not works of a dead man. They are the work of a living being that has been sovereignly made alive by Christ. This is the love that we experience as believers this is the kind of love that creates an unshakable confidence so that when everything around us is shaking and crumbling, we know that we are loved. We know that our eternal destiny is one of life. If all of you know is the offer, you don't know enough. The offer can't save you. It can't create life from that which is dead. I knew the love of, of, of the offer at, at age 8. It wasn't until the age 20 
I experienced the great love of God and was born again and raised with Christ into eternal life. So going back and read Ephesians again, it says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God's great love is what makes you alive. And that's why we were able to believe. We can also see this. Um, his great love displayed through um, uh, in, in the, the, the parables about the sheep or the, the relationship of a sheep to a shepherd. It's a close study of John's gospel. Reveals an interesting relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. Our relationship to Christ as one of his sheep is not that we believe in order to become sheep, but that God makes us sheep in order that we might believe. It's clear in John 10:25, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. It doesn't say you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. It says just the opposite. You do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. You must be first be made a part of the flock in order to believe. Why do the sheep come? They come because the Father has chosen them, and he gives them to us, gives them to Jesus. John six thirty seven says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. They come because Jesus, because God draws them. We come as, as Christ's sheep because we are drawn by God. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And John 6, 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This being brought to Jesus is the great love that goes beyond the offer of eternal life in, in John three sixteen, It's the great love that secures us in eternal life. God lovingly makes, makes us to be one of his own, and he holds us there. Why doesn't everyone believe the good news of John three sixteen? Why don't people come? Jesus answers that for us in John 3, beginning in verse 19, says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why do people not believe? The answer is, they hated the light. It wasn't attractive to them. The Internet was more attractive to them. Money and fame were more attractive to them. Career and sports were more attractive Entertainment and relaxation are more attractive. Family and relationships were more attractive. Jesus in his way and his sovereign love was not attractive to them. The light had no effect on these dead, blind, rebellious, guilty hearts. And that's why people don't come. The more amazing, important question for us is, why do any of us come? And if you have, why did you come? Why not you? Why you and not a brother or a sister or maybe a child or a parent. I'm sure every one of us has someone. It could be a parent, a child, or a, a grandparent, a nephew, an uncle. There is someone in our families who hasn't, hasn't come. The question is why? Or why, why us and not them? Are we smarter than they are? Or are we more spiritual than they are? We need to be careful not to kid ourselves here and to fool ourselves here to think that that might be the cause. Beyond the amazing gift of John, in John 3.16, where God offers himself to the whole world, that whoever would believe may come and have eternal life, beyond that is the great love by which we are made to come to Christ. That's the love that overcame our rebellion. God's wrath is removed by it, and our eternal joy is secured by it.
If we only know the love of John 3.16, there is more for you to know. If all of you know is the love, the offer of John 3.16, there's more. Those of you who believe in Christ, God wants you to know your self-love, not only with the universal love of John 3.16, but also with his death-conquering, hardness-removing, rebellion-eradicating, sight-imparting, faith-creating, personal, individual, invincible covenant love of which we are absolutely undeserving. This great love should cause us to spend the rest of our days being amazed by what God has done for us, being amazed that we've been made alive with Christ. We should never once take credit for it as, as well, never once think that we raised ourselves from the dead. We need to never think that we created faith in our own hearts in order to believe, or that we created faith in our own hearts that would incline, incline us to choose to follow Christ. We need to be careful not to go there, not to think that we did this. We need to be careful not to rob God of the greatness of his love and his power in our lives. Which leaves one final question. Do you live in the love, the forgiveness, and life, and freedom of John 3.16? It's not just a question about whether you give it lip service to affirm that this verse is in the Bible. The devil affirms that it's in the Bible. I'm asking you, do you live there? Was this verse taught to you as a child? I'm sure all of our children know this one. Maybe you know it, maybe you've memorized it, but do you live it? Do you experience it? Or do you live just like everybody else lives? Do you have all the same values, priorities, same way of living that all the unbelievers around us do? If so, it's because you haven't received the great love of God and experienced new life yet. Not just an extension of this life, but eternal life. The kind of life that gives, is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of life that loves God. It's the kind of life that enjoys God and enjoys being with God. It's the kind of life that gives us the strength to overcome sin, to conquer sin in our lives. That's what the life that's promised to us in John 3.16. Closing with this quote from D.L. Moody. He wrote this. He says, Written on the outside of the gate of heaven are the words, Whosoever will may come. And on the other side of that gate, which can, you can read from the inside is written, Chosen before the foundation of the world. Worship team would come on back up. Let's pray.